Any great idea starts with a pitch, whether it's starting a business, buying a home, or convincing the president of a country to sign off on your science experiment. Miguel Nicolelis had a place to live, and he wasn't looking to be on Shark Tank. The 2014 World Cup was around the corner, and Nicolelis, a veteran researcher and professor of neurobiology at Duke University, was trying to sell the world on something that was considered impossible. And there are all these crazy, loony ideas going around and mentioning to the president of Brazil. Suddenly, I raised my hand and said, well, what about if we have a paraplegic, a Brazilian paraplegic, delivering the opening kickoff of the World Cup using the first exoskeleton control directly by the brain through a brain-machine interface? <laughs> and the president of Brazil looked at me and said, who are you? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm the guy who knows the people who can come and do this thing. This meeting Miguel's at? It's to decide how Brazil would open the World Cup. Keep in mind, this event attracts billions of viewers around the world. So whatever they chose needed to make a statement. And Miguel was offering just that. He wanted to show the world that a paralyzed person could walk again. For me, it was a moonshot. For me personally, it was inspired in the moonshot. You know, when I proposed the idea for the first time to some people, people said, this is impossible. You're never going to do that in 18 months. It cannot be done. You know, I said, well, the human brain has a, an attribute of challenging when faced with impossible conditions. Nowadays, we're all facing impossible conditions. The global health emergency, financial crisis, and social isolation wrought by the coronavirus. And the path out will be science-driven, led by the proliferation of widespread testing, more comprehensive tracking, and an eventual vaccine. We're hoping for a return to normalcy or something like normalcy. But what is science teaching us about the ways in which we may be able to attain a new, better normal? Almost 30 years ago, Miguel Nicolelis revolutionized the way neuroscientists studied the brain. Now he leads an international group of scientists with the goal of helping severely paralyzed patients regain full body mobility. Miguel explained all this in a 2019 Shannon Luminary Lecture entitled The Future of Human Augmentation, delivered at Nokia Bell Labs headquarters in Murray Hill, New Jersey. And aside from buzzwords like exoskeleton and brain-machine interface, Miguel showed just how incredibly adaptable our brains can be, how augmentation isn't just a means to restore movement, but can actually spur broader healing, which, in his line of research, raises a question. What other breakthroughs could this lead to? Could it help treat disease? So I think this applies to many diseases, including potentially Alzheimer's disease. As he told Marcus Weldon, president of Nokia Bell Labs and corporate CTO of Nokia, the answer is encouraging. So basically things like epilepsy, Parkinson's, that seem to have this hyperscale, if you can catch them early on and resynchronize it, it stops. Yes, that's what we are about to embark on. Now that we know that it works in Parkinson, trying different other neurological disorders. That's it. Off you go. From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. This episode is entitled The Kick Heard Around the World. A couple things to note about Miguel. He loves Star Trek, and he's not afraid to insult your favorite football, a.k.a. soccer team. Also, he's got a way of turning obscure scientific details into dramatic plot points. 
For instance, during an early visit to Bell Labs, Miguel and his advisor were nurturing what was considered a far-fetched idea at the time. What we wanted to do was totally insane for the perspective of the neuroscience of the late 80s. We wanted to record electrical pulses of more than one neuron at a time. Only so much information can pass through a brain cell. And that's exactly what neuroscientists were keying in on in the late 80s and early 90s. They were trying to study individual neurons. And I spent 10 years of my life doing that, twigging hairs of rats to measure the sensory responses of individual neurons. You, you have not gone to hell until, <laughs> you know, you learn to do that. Maybe counting rat whiskers was driving Miguel nuts, or maybe he was actually onto something. This obsession with individual cells did not make sense to him or his mentor, a fellow neuroscientist named John Chapin. Considering that there are about 86 billion neurons in a human brain, studying them one at a time would be like trying to tell the shape of a beach from a grain of sand. It's going to take a long time to understand this thing if we're going to go one by one. So, colleagues joked with them. But Miguel and John kept pushing. They ran experiments with rats, then monkeys. In the beginning, they were just trying to figure out how to turn a brain signal into a computer command. That was the goal. And of course, we had no clue whether this would happen. To test this, they had monkeys play a game. Each animal would use a joystick to move a cursor on a screen. And once that cursor hit a randomly selected target, a drop of orange juice would be dispensed. Miguel would run these trials thousands of times a day. So the monkey would click. Out comes some juice. All the while, they're rerouting whatever brain data they're collecting from her into a computer, and then from a computer into a robotic arm. And we are getting outputs that try to mimic the movements that she's performing in a robotic arm that is in a different role. Which leads us to the first breakthrough moment. And what you're going to see here, I like to say is a very dramatic line, and I love it, is the first day that the brain got liberated from the physical limits of the body to act in the world directly by using its electrical output. Said another way, Miguel and his team figured how to control technology just by thinking. The monkey actually thought this mechanical arm was its own. Its brain registered it as a limb. Clearly, something big was going on. The next step was to push the envelope even further. I wanted to prove that we could induce locomotion and other types of movements and not necessarily uh, physiological or normally seen nature. Miguel tested the same thing with a wheelchair. He strapped a monkey into one, and the same thing happened. The monkey zoomed around the room collecting grapes, all the while telling the wheelchair where to go just by thinking. That wheelchair became assimilated by the brain as an extension of the monkey's body. So this was repeated evidence of the same point. Miguel and his team had built a device that simulated body parts. All that was left was to come up with a name. John and I were in one of the most famous cheesesteak joints in, outside Philadelphia, Genos. And we are there eating this cheesesteak, and we need to send this grant, and we had no idea how we were going to name the image that you just seen. And I don't remember who one of us or both of us just said, well, let's call it Brain Machine Interface. And a huge truck driver next to us 
completely full of cheese in his face, looked at us and said, that was a very good name. So we got immediate peer review approval, you know? So Miguel and his team showed a monkey could control a mechanical arm using nothing but its mind. And that sprouted a new question. How adaptable are animal brains? And what about our brains? Can we go even further down the road? Could we apply this new discovery of the dimension of plasticity of the human brain or the mammalian brain and try to attack questions that are even more complex? The application that came to mind was for people who'd lost the ability to move, whether that's a single limb, their entire body, or somewhere in between. Now, this could be the result of an injury or a disease like Parkinson's. All told, tens of millions of people across the world fall into these categories, and their conditions are notoriously hard to treat, let alone reverse. So, not for the first time in his career, Miguel was floating an ambitious goal. But he's at least got a foundation to work from. And that includes one important idea he picked up from his monkey experiments. Something called a body schema. Our brains, all our brains, have an image of our bodies inside our heads that is very important for defining our sense of self and a variety of computations about motion. Anytime we move, our brain references this file. It contains info on how much space we take up, which may sound like an odd thing considering the sheer number of movements we perform daily. In a healthy person, this file has tabs on the whole body. In a person with an impaired nervous system, some of these tabs get lost. Like for instance, when you get a patient that suffers a car accident and has a complete lesion of the spinal cord, below the level of this lesion, The patient cannot move. The patient cannot feel the body at all. So much so that this body representation that I mentioned to you starts to shrink to represent only the territories that remain innervated. So if you're quadriplegic, the only thing that is represented after a few years in your brain is your head. Your sense of self stops here, literally. Miguel noticed that it was also possible to grow the body schema this file that our brain keeps on our whereabouts in space. This went both for the mechanical arm and the wheelchair in the monkey experiments. Even if these devices weren't in the same room as the monkey, she still considered it a limb. So, if a monkey could add a body part, does that mean we could recover a paralyzed one? This was a big revolution because it meant that even if the subject is completely paralyzed, You can train that person to interact and to learn how to operate a brain-machine interface because you can just show the intended movements on a screen and the brain, being the true creator of everything that it is, is going to actually embed in tissue the representation, the statistics of the movements that you want to produce. This is all taking place in 2012, decades after Miguel and his mentor first began their research. A lot has changed in this span people weren't as skeptical of Miguel's ideas anymore. The National Institute of Health recognized him with a Pioneer Award in 2010. One year later, he was named the Brazilian Personality of the Year. So, when Miguel came up with another ambitious experiment to make another person walk again, researchers from across the world answered a call for help. And the idea was, 
in 2012 to build uh, the first brain control exoskeleton that a paraplegic patient could use to actually walk and receive feedback from this device as it's walking in the environment. For that, I start calling... He founded a group called the Walk Again Project. And their goal was to build an exoskeleton for the severely paralyzed, something with arms and legs that they could control just with their brain. It so happened that I'm Brazilian, and I was in the right place at the right moment, the presidential palace in Brasilia, a few years ago, when people were debating, what do we do in the opening ceremony of the World Cup? Somehow, Miguel finds himself next to Dilma Rousseff, the first female president of Brazil. Well, actually, he finds himself in a room full of people, and everyone there is pitching their own ideas on how the country should kick off the 2014 World Cup. Which takes us back to the moment from the beginning of this story. And all these crazy, loony ideas going around and mentioning to the president of Brazil, suddenly I raised my hand and said, well, what about if we have a paraplegic, a Brazilian paraplegic, delivering the... Only this time, instead of getting shrugged off, Miguel's idea sticks. It was the greatest and perhaps the latest phenomenal grant I ever got in my life because she signed right there. You know, the type of peer review that I enjoy. And the group got to work immediately. Eight patients from a pool of 65,000 paraplegics in the largest database in Brazil, one of the greatest in the world, actually. We had to build an exoskeleton. We had to build a lab inside a soccer stadium because that's where we had to deliver this thing on June 12th. The instructions got even more precise. I never forget this until I'm alive. June 12, 2014, 3.30 p.m. Swiss precision. It had to be done at that moment. So Miguel and his team started planning an experiment. They recruited eight people with serious spinal cord injuries, some of whom hadn't walked in more than a decade. They'd build these exoskeletons, and they try out new technologies, like the one Gordon Cheng developed. He's a friend of Miguel's and professor of cognitive systems in Germany. And he contributed this skin-like circuit board that actually allowed participants to feel again. So they can actually feel what is to walk again as they see themselves walking. Other researchers chipped in too. People from Brazil, the U.S., Switzerland. And when I sat down with Miguel to talk about all this, he made a point of saying what this level of collaboration really meant to him. And that gave me not only hope, but also I think it was a great message to show that when we talk about science, we can come together from all over the planet and accomplish amazing things, you know. So there's all these patients and researchers on the team, but when it came down to it, everything rested on one person's shoulders, Giuliano Pinto. It was his job to kick the ball. He'd lost movement in his legs after a car accident in 2006. But with the help of the exoskeleton, he could walk. He was taking hundreds of steps a day to train for this event. And it went on for about 18 months, right up until the day of the opening ceremony. There are 65,000 people in the stadium. Uh, the audience at that moment was 1.2 billion people. Giuliano Pinto, a T4, complete paraplegic, nine years in a wheelchair, he looked at me and said, you know, this is heavy. I said, well, yeah, good moment to remember that. Giuliano had this huge framed backpack on his hips. Picture a bulky jetpack with 
wires jutting out of the bottom. And, like Giuliano said, the thing is heavy. So there's this entourage of people helping him make his way onto the field. We had a surprise for him that he didn't know about. We turned a sensor in the foot on, right here on the toe, because Brazilians toe poke balls a lot. And what we wanted is not only for Giuliano to kick, but to experience the contact with the ball. You can find FIFA's official video of the event online. Here's what you'll see. Giuliano is standing there in this massive suit. All of a sudden, these LED lights start flashing. They travel from Giuliano's back to his leg, all the way down to his foot. It was as if the thought was working its way through his spinal cord, down to the point in the turf where the soccer ball sat. And when he actually did kick the ball, the stadium went crazy, we went crazy, he went crazy. We run to him and the only thing he could repeat was not, I, I, I score, I move, I kick, was I felt the ball. Can you imagine what it would be like to feel your foot after being paralyzed for almost a decade? Crazy. So crazy, in fact, that it's easy to wonder what's next. Think of a movie like Brainstorm. It's this 80s sci-fi with Christopher Walken and Natalie Wood in her last film role. It's about some scientists who learn how to record sensations in the brain. Only, they take it a step farther and actually make those experiences transferable. So one person can experience exactly what another person is feeling. Is this what's next? Brain dumping and stuff. No, it's not going to happen. That's my position. I was having a mathematical discussion after the talk with a mathematician. I'm not a mathematician, but I'm absolutely convinced that there is a barrier. Even Miguel says this idea is still pretty far-fetched, which says a lot coming from him. After the World Cup kick, he thought things would start winding down. He went back to the lab, which is when something unexpected happened. One month later, everybody came back to the lab after the World Cup was over, and we went to do our routine neurological exam because it's part of our RBI. It's mandatory in Brazil every three months. It doesn't matter if you have a spinal cord injury. You have to do entire neurological exam and document it. He tested all the patients they had enrolled in the experiment which included Giuliano. Before the experiment, he was completely paralyzed from the waist down, what you'd call a T4 paraplegic. But when he was examined that day, he was a T11. He had gained seven segments of the spinal cord in tactile sensitivity. This transition had never been described, uh, or people thought it was impossible to happen. We realized that what we had touched was much deeper than we imagined. We thought, you know, one thing is to restore function. That was the threshold that we had proposed ourselves to cross. And we did. With the kick, we did. But the threshold of recovery is much higher. So you went from a rehab tool to a potential therapy. Miguel says the biggest application could be remote therapy. If you only need your brain to regain movement, then theoretically, you could do this type of work without any equipment or trainers. And without these resources being a factor, you could do this almost anywhere in the world. 
It's amazing to me that so much of the research you're showing and the videos you're showing are so recent, you know, in scientific terms, 2016 is pretty recent. Yeah. Is the progress that you're seeing accelerating now? It is, but is uh, you have to realize there's also a very difficult time here in the U.S. to do this kind of research because the resources are evaporating. Competition for funding from the federal government is very tough. And even though you have these breakthroughs, it's very difficult to convince. Miguel remembers when things used to be different, when more people valued science and more people understood the importance of research. Uh, to give an idea, I grew up in Brazil in the 60s, looking at every single bit of information about the Apollo program, about the Gemini program. I was a complete lunatic. To this day, I have the, the map that my grandmother gave me on the moon in 69 with the marks of where New Armstrong was going to land. I have it in my house. It's 50 years old. These days, the only mass-produced science posters tend to be warnings about impending climate doom or a dangerous pandemic. They're not aspirational. And that's what Miguel feels is being lost. You don't need a PhD to understand the subtext of a space launch, the smoke, the engine fire, massive machinery hurtling through the air. The act practically screams possibility. And in a way, it's the same principle Miguel channels in his work. So people say, oh, people don't care about science. It's not true. You just have to communicate. You have to disseminate the real essence of it. You know? And when you tell people that you want to try to do something impossible, they relate to you. They understand where you're going. Nothing is impossible. That's a phrase that makes for a fine bumper sticker. But as a scientist, Miguel needs evidence. And he has the receipts. After the 2014 World Cup, he's invited to give this talk in Australia. It's spring, the scenery is gorgeous, and after his talk, a professor takes him for a drive along the ocean. So we are coming back and downhill after seeing this major, beautiful southern Australia scenery, and people are hitchhacking, these uh, high school kids, and we gave a ride to one high school kid. And I'm there, quiet there, talking about rugby, whatever. And then the guy said, well, did you watch the World Cup last summer? And I said, oh, yeah, of course, we beat Spain. How could I not watch the World Cup? And they said, well, but what did you really like on the World Cup? I said, oh, man, those crazy dudes making that guy walk. And I'm just looking there. And the professor says, well, this is the guy who coordinated the group. We had to stop the car. <laughs> we had to go in the rain because the guy wanted to take a picture of whatever southern ocean of Australia. We were, his buddies and I, these are high school kids in the middle of nowhere in Australia. I realized, well, that's exactly what I had in mind. Call it unproven, call it anecdotal. But at the end of the day, it's, at the very least, a start. To hear Miguel's entire Shannon Luminary Lecture, check out the very next show in this feed. For more information on today's topics, please check out our show notes. And if you like this episode of Future Human, consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Also, feel free to leave a review at Apple Podcasts so new listeners can find the show. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was executive produced and narrated by me, 
Sandy Smallins, for audiation. Our producer and writer is Max Wasserman. The show is recorded and mixed at Audiation Studios at The Loft in Bronxville, New York, by Matt Noble, who also composed the theme music with me. Audiation.